Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. This week we sit down with 1998 Bathurst 1000 winner, supercars veteran and one-time IndyCar racer, Jason Bright. Now in the second part of our chat, Jason opens up about his V8 supercars career with a very frank assessment of his time at the Holden Racing Team, how his deal to switch to Ford came together and then how it all fell apart, and he's used to at Brad Jones Racing, for whom he claims several emotional race victories, including the team's first in supercars in terms of championship competition. He also answers your National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions and our traditional motor-focused top 10 shootout. Now, as I said at the start of part one, uh, we did this one over the phone. Jason didn't come into V8 Sleuth headquarters or me go to see him at his task force office. So this one will sound a little bit different to our previous ones, given it's down the phone line, but it's the content that's king. It's the chat and the history that is the stuff that's really important. So just keep that in mind as you listen. It's not the best audio quality down the phone line compared to sitting face to face, but we will get back to that someday, very time soon, I'm sure. Now... If you've entered our V8 Sleuth Trivia Competition, stay tuned. Our three winners will be announced at the end of this episode. So, here we go. Buckle up, time to start. Part two of Jason Bright on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken. We've talked a lot open wheeler and and overseas stuff. Let's delve into the the supercar stuff a little bit more. And you mentioned about, uh, we've covered the Stones era a bit. You did, um, I think everyone forgets, you did one start with Dick Johnson's team at Bathurst with Paul Radisich, and you, you nearly won the thing. You finished second. What, what's your memory of how – because you couldn't do Queensland because you had an Indy Lights race, and they dragged Dick out of retirement. I don't think he was too keen to do it, but they made him do it. Uh, what do you remember of, about that weekend? Very much a, a one-off, and it's really weird to see the photos of you in the yellow shell suit because I think people probably forget that one. Yeah, it was It was pretty cool. I mean, I was – you know, lucky that year I got to drive some great cars and, and, uh, you know, that was one of them, you know, the weekend I didn't feel like, you know, I probably got the most out of the car that weekend. You know, Paul did a great job of rain all weekend. Oh, that was you terrible know, was, that weekend. It was horrendous weather. Um, and, you know, there's one thing I remember from that weekend, you know, I think we, we came into the last, the last sort of hour there. Um, it was, you know, I think we were 30 seconds behind, Scarf, Tander, and, and Bug. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd been fortunate enough to obviously win the race a couple of years before. And, and uh, you know, I don't ever remember who came second at Bathurst. So um, the track was still wet, but it was drying out, you know, pretty quickly. Um, and I went up to Dick and said, oh, mate, can you remember who came second last year? And he's like, no, I can't. I'm like, neither can I. I reckon we should pit. Um, and, uh, and so they actually... Did pit. We pitted, you know, several laps earlier than Bugs and Garth, and um, it meant that, you know, when Paul had his tyres up to temperature, he was catching him at like six seconds a lap for a few laps, and I think we got to within six seconds of Kander and Bugs, um, and that was as close as we got, you know. But yeah, we had a, we had a pretty good crack at it. Um, you know, like I said, Paul did a good job with, you know, threw him out there on uh, on on a still reasonably wet track, but it was the only way that we were going to catch up that 30 seconds, um, and we nearly did. That weekend that you mentioned earlier was the weekend in 2000 that you, you signed your deal for HRT um, for, for the following year to join Mark Scaife, as it, as it turned out. Uh, for that Bathurst in 2000, which you'd done the American thing in Indian Delight, you had the Gold Coast race um, on your plate as well, Surely the phone rang, not just DJR wanted a piece of you. Who, who else was trying to grab you for that Bathurst in 2000? Because I would have thought, we love, because we, it's 20 years ago now, you can tell us all the truth. Were yeah, there any uh, other good offers? Was there any other potential deals you could have taken that weekend? Yeah, actually, you know, even though it sort of finished a little bit sour with, with Stones, um, you know, me going to America in 2000, you know, they, they were pretty keen on doing something for Bathurst, um, you know, which... Yeah, it was a nice feeling because obviously I didn't like the way that it sort of ended with me, you know, taking off. But um, yeah, I know I know that when I actually came out to Eastern Creek, I think it was, and and uh, had a chat to a few of them, and you know, Jimmy had me sitting in the car, and and uh, you know, was pretty keen to do something. But you know, the deal with with uh, DJR was sort of already underway at that stage, and you know, uh, yeah, so I was sort of 
I'm sorry, I can't remember what other offers there might have been at the time. Um, but yeah, it was you know, 2000 was a great year. I I look back on that year very fondly, and as far as learning wise, I got to work with uh, an extremely good engineer in Indy Lights that I learned so much from. Uh, I got to race a champ car. I got to race a supercar at Bathurst still with Dick Johnson. I got to race the Panos um, LMP1 car. At I was going to get to that. Thousand years get to on that. the yep. on the street race. So yeah, 2000 was an amazing year where I just felt like I was in a race car all year. You know, we back then you had 20 test days in Indy Lights, 12 race meetings. You had um, four, a couple of test days in the Indy car plus that race meeting. You know, testing in the panels, testing in the supercar. So, you know, that was that was probably my standout year as far as the amount of driving I did, and I think you learn a lot when you're driving that often. In these days, a lot of drivers don't understand that that's even possible because of budgets, testing restrictions, even ignoring the current situation that the world's in. Uh, very different motorsport world to, to 20 years ago. Hey, tell me about when, obviously, you did the deal to, to go to HRT and you spent two years there in the red cars with Mark Scaife as, as your teammate. You did pair up a couple of times at those Queensland 500s, and then they split you for some of the other Enduros. That's when Scaife was at his probably at his biggest and best. I mean, he won the championship three years in a row, double O, O one, O two. I never got the feeling you two were tied as teammates. You're very different people in the way you approach it and your your methodology. What's your you're looking looking back on that twenty years ago or eighteen or nineteen or whatever it is, what's your take on your, your scape relationship at the time and how that all unfolded? Because it always would seem that he had the power base in that team, which was, you know, he ended up buying it and, and owning it there for a time. But looking back on it versus at the time, how do you how do you look at all that? Yeah, I mean I yeah, you know, I agree. I, I don't never felt like I was part of you know, or as as well sort of involved there as, as what Mark was. You know, Mark had obviously been there for five years or something before I got there anyway. So, um, you know, I I never felt like I got the team around me there like I could at other places. Um, and that, you know, that and then we had very different philosophies on, you know, which direction the car should be going in. Um, you know, and, and so that, that was always difficult. You know, I, I felt like you know, what he was doing in 2001 probably worked better, and then in 2002, the direction I wanted to go in worked better. But, you know, I didn't manage to put together a, a good year either year, unfortunately, um, to, you know, to challenge him for a championship. Um, but, you know, I, what I, you know, I guess the next couple of years moving to Team Brock and PWR, they were probably more enjoyable because I did have a good small team around me. I had an engineer that that uh, I worked really well with and, and um, you know, we bounced off each other well and and I helped him get up to see with supercars and, and that was a enjoyable period. And like I said before, I felt like that era, we were getting everything out of the car. Um, you know, we were, we were maximising what we had. And so that, that was more enjoyable, even though we were, you know, just the next workshop over from HRT, uh, that was probably a more enjoyable period because I felt like we were sort of punching above our weight a little bit. Is that why you did that deal to go into the, the keys wheel? I mean, it was labelled Team Brock. Peter Brock was the figurehead and that relationship with he and the, the wheels dissolved and it became, I mean, it was always PWR racing really in essence, but it was yep. formerly PWR for the next year in 04. Did you go and do that deal because of the situation where you wanted to be a bit more in control or be a bit happier in your scenario? Because most people would say stepping out of a seat in the biggest and best, I mean, what was Ferrari of V8 supercars, HRT at the time, was total madness. But what was the driving factor there? Were you moved? Did you move yourself? How did that all happen? No, uh, John Crennan approached me and said, you know, we've got this deal you know, coming along with, with uh, Brock and, and Team Brock and Keith Wheels going to, going to sort of help make it all happen and and uh, you know I, I knew Keith and, and I spent quite a bit of time with him up on the Gold Coast I actually lived at Paul's house when I first returned from uh, from America in 2000 so um, you know I, I thought and, and it was probably what I was looking for which was you know not not so um, much in the in the 
factory team limelight. It was uh, it was being able to just go racing and concentrate on my racing and and get that back to where I felt like it should be. And um, you know, I so I it was it was the option of either staying at HRT and you know being Mark's teammate. It felt like or going and being a lead driver at Team Brock. And that was what was put to me, you know, the way that I felt. And I really sort of wanted to, to be that, you know, lead position at, at, a, at a team again. And that's what I felt like Team Brock was going to give me. And then, as we mentioned before, the, the change of, I guess, label to PWR, even though it was the, the same team, but you were always kind of hamstrung because that, there was it was the time when the great ownership drama was happening with TWR had collapsed overseas, the assets and the the licenses were up for grabs, and there was all sorts of moving and pushing and pulling to to try to get around the the situation with Tiger, and it was there was a lot of that stuff going at the time, and it meant you couldn't go testing in two thousand and three, yeah, and yeah. you were still running the older model VX Commodore, which probably for a time was a good thing because it was a proven package, but as the VY and the newer engine developed along it started to become more competitive so did you feel like the thing that you'd gone to go and do um, was was held back because of where you were in the pecking order of the the supply of hardware in what i think at that time was called holder motorsport in the in we, we say clayton because it's the melbourne suburb yep. where uh, hsv hrt kmart racing and team brock all were located is that how it how it sort of played out it's how it looked on the outside yeah I, yeah I, I was pretty frustrated by it at the time because you know we were we came out of the block really strong in 2003 and, and uh, you know, we were leading the championship um, and, you know, we, we got polled Adelaide and, you know, I, you know, I think if we had a, had the support engine-wise, you know, I think we were running the 18-degree mm-hmm. old motorsport engine was sort of being blamed for some of the results, but I think that it was actually a pretty good, pretty good engine, um, you know, so, and going by, you know, what, I've heard it was was a very good engine, and, and I, I, yeah, I, so I felt like we were hamstrung a little bit those last, that, that couple of years. But you know, we're obviously in the older model, and you know, no one wanted to see a, a VX beating a VY. Um, so until we sort of moved to the VY, we were never going to get you know all the bits, I guess. Um, and in two thousand and four, you know, I, I felt like you know we, we still didn't get the whole motorsport engine that year. So I was, you know, I was a little bit frustrated by, by that because um, I felt like both of those years we could have had a, a much better crack at it um, if we had, you know, a bit better support. But you know, we weren't factory team, and you know, even though we we're sort of getting pretty good results that couple of years, um, you know, it's just the way that the, the pecking order worked, I guess. When did the, the the wheels get rolling for what became Brytech Motorsport, which you established in, in 2005? What was the catalyst? What part, where did you decide? Did you always have a hankering to, to want to do the team ownership thing? And I guess this is all going on while you're at PWR and, and driving and trying to, to fight for wins and championships. What was the starting point of, of what became Brytech? Uh, it was it was around that sort of 2003 and four period. You know, I had... Um, you know, I guess I had enough belief that, you know, we could get the backing to, to start my own team and, and I was only going to do it as a one-car Holden team at the time. Uh, Hang on a minute. Holden? So, that's not what worked out. Tell more. Yeah. No, I was. I was, it was, you know, I was going to either use a Walkinshaw car or um, or maybe a Paul Morris car and, and uh, just set up a one-car Holden team out of a workshop and, and uh, you know, Holden, I was, you know, sort of, to get some support from Holden to do it as well. Um, and, you know, that was the direction I was going. I got, I got a phone call from um, Caterpillar, managing director, and asked whether I'd come and have a meeting with them, uh, with them and Ford. And, um, and, I, and my initial was, no, I'm not interested. I'm, you know, I'm already set on my way. You know, oh, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm not interested. Why don't you come and support me in my one-car Holden team? And, um, and you know, they kept pushing until I, I went and had the meeting with him. Um, and, and the offer was sort of too good to, to refuse at the time. You know, I, it was, you know, five-year deal, two years that I had to spend at ProDrive at the time um, to, to help them. Craig Lowndes was leaving and, um, you know, and then I moved to my own team where the 
support from Ford was, you know, way better than what I was ever going to get from Holden, I believed, in that period. Um, and then, you know, as it turned out, unfortunately, with the GFC hitting, um, you know, all of the sponsorship dried up. You know, people or manufacturers uh, were pretty good at getting out of contracts and um, and I ended up, you know, left in the lurch there a little bit. But, you know, yeah, like I said, and, and if it wasn't for, you know, the way that Ford wanted to go about it with two cars and, and uh, you know, all of the manufacturing in-house and, and uh, you know, own engine program and, uh, we, you know, we we had we, we were set up with CNC machines, dynos, everything. If it wasn't for all of that equipment, then I don't think it would have you know impacted us as badly. Um, but all of that infrastructure and that way of doing it relied on good manufacturing support of that level. And once that had gone, it, it uh, you know it was pretty obvious that we weren't going to be able to run at that level. So I take out of that that. They kind of, am I right in what I'm sort of picking out of this, that Ford pushed you to go down the path that you probably didn't want to do? You would have rather to run, because the customer car thing at the time was still not a, a thing so much like it is in the, the Supercars Championship these days. Am I getting the sense right there that you kind of got pushed into doing it a way that you didn't want to uh, do it? I wouldn't say pushed. You know, I, I, don't, don't get me wrong, I, you know, the offer that you know was on the table, that was amazing. And... So it was like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do it that way. You know, but I'd, I'd never sort of envisaged doing it that way. I was happy to do it as a one-car team um, and build on that. But, you know, the, the the opportunity that was being put in front of me was like to be a two-car team and, you know, the funding to do, you know, everything in-house. And, and um, you know, that was like, I was very proud of what we'd built and, and the support that we had. You know, we had great sponsors like Fujitsu and Ford and Caterpillar and West Track and, you know, the funding was there, uh, and and you know, I was probably they were probably very um, had their hands tied for those first couple of years because while I was at ProDrive, they weren't allowed to test, and so because they were grouped that was together, probably the weren't cruelest they? Cruelest part, yeah, that was the cruelest part. You know, they had two rookie drivers in Steve Owen and Matt White and Luffy the year after, and Jose, and you know, they weren't even allowed to go testing. You know, and that. It's just ridiculous. You know, that's not what's in the best interest of the sport. And, you know, the reasoning was that I was, you know, joined to, to ProDrive. Um, you know, and I, I feel like, you know, it's a pretty cruel in that regard that those guys had the hand side and the team, for that matter, um, for no reason. At what point was it clear that, uh, what we thought we were doing here and the pathway we were going is not going to work. Is it a case of going, hang on a minute, I've, I've got this contract, I've got this deal, it says that you will pay me this much money for this long to do these things. I guess, is it just a case where a big company can just say, no, sorry, and you've got no leg to stand on? Is that how it worked out? Yeah, it pretty much. I mean, you know, like I said, they there was a pause in the contract that you know they felt like they could get out on and, and um, you know, there was... If I had the if the problem was I had the contract in Brightech's name rather than my own name, which the deal was all done around my name, you know, being a pro drive, et cetera, and and uh, you know, there wouldn't have been a way out of it. But you know, I, I was like, I oh, don't no, just put it in Brightech's name and so that that was probably what caught us out. I went and met with Tom Gorman, who was managing director of Ford at the time and and, he, and you know, he was pretty straight up, like, you know, and I take my hat off to him, he was like, I'm going to you know, I'm going down to Geelong today to put five thousand people on. You know, do you want me to let them know that we're going to continue to sponsor you? And I'm like, yeah, right, point taken. Um, so, you know, I know it was just a very tough time in, you know, the world of sport sponsorship-wise when, you know, manufacturers are all cutting their, their, their marketing budgets and, you know, they just sort of cop that one on the chin, unfortunately. The standout memory for me of, of your time with Brytech, when you got into the seat, so you did your two years with FPR that were – I mean, 05 was kind of a rebuilding year for that team. 06, the speed was definitely there. And you and Mark Winterbottom won the Sandown 500. I think you won at Winton. You were fast in Bahrain. Uh, Frosty had a win in the last race of the year, I think, at Phillip Island. So all the wheels were in play that FPR was finding its way again. And then you're out the door off to do the Brightech thing. Was there a – did you try to stay and change that deal to, to stay for a third year? No, I mean, I, yeah, there was there was a contract offered which was like 
crazy and it also crazy good or crazy bad crazy good yeah no it was it was another it was, it was very attractive offer um you know in hindsight it's a great thing i probably should have stayed you know if i'd have known what was going to unfold the next couple of years but you know i it was a great offer i got to, you know it even included doing um more races in the or as many races as i could in the aston martin sports car um but you know it's I knew that if I didn't move to my team at that point, then you know it's just going to be hard to hang on to the likes of Fujitsu and and uh, and you know the other sponsors that we had on board like West Track and you know they, they were all there because I was mm. going to be there initially, and then I had to you know buy that two years over at ProDrive, and then you know I just couldn't I would have lost Brightech if I didn't you know right there and then if I didn't move there so. Um, so I had to make that decision and, and make that jump. You know, it was it was equally hard, you know, leaving there as it was leaving PWR at the end of 2004, you know, because we were in a pretty good car at the time, you know, winning races and, you know, a good shot of the championship either of those years, 2005 or 2007, would have been possible. Tell me about the scenario that I think the standout, and I think you briefly touched on earlier, Bathurst 2007. It's a classic sliding doors scenario. So that was one of the best final 30 laps of a Bathurst 1000, I think, in the, in the event's history because it had all the the bits that you want for the drama that that place continually turns out, uh, a late weather storm on its way. Uh, but to paint the picture for our listeners who might not remember, I mean, it's 13 years ago, it seems like yesterday, you were driving for your team in the Fujitsu car the first year that you drove the Brightech car. So Adam Macro your co-driver, it's late in the race. You've worked your way into the lead with the way that it's all flowed out in the day. And then uh, it was a scenario where you were – I'm trying to get all the ducks in a row right here, but basically it it came at the time that a rainstorm was kind of lurking when you needed to make your last pit stop and you went for cold, slick tyres. You didn't keep the warm slicks on and you didn't go for wet weather tyres and you ended up in the fence at the top of the hill. What had to change differently in that scenario? Because you were in the box seat. If it pelted yeah. with rain right at the point you were going to make that stop, everyone else who had ended up behind you quite away, you were all going to have to pick going wets and you would have had an easy lead. Yep. Correct? Yep. No, and that's pretty much how it came out. I mean, we were, we were sort of midfield most of the day and, um, you know, the track really came to us. And I, I got in the car, I think, you know, sort of the double stint to the end, but we were... I remember we Adam was in the car and, and an opportunity came to pit and and I wasn't even you know ready at the time but the opportunity was too good so we we pitted and I think I was still running out getting my gloves on and, and when I got in the car we were half a sequence out on everyone else and but the car speed was awesome and I think so I think we we worked our way up from midfield all the way up and I think we were sort of on track position we probably would have popped out just behind. Mark and um, and Wing Cup in third place, but we were going to go all the way through to midway into that last stint, and we would have come out with fresh tyres, and they would have been sort of on tyres that had already done fifteen laps because you could do you know around thirty laps back then. So, um, so I felt like we we're in a very good position going into that last stint, and, um, and it started to rain, uh, you know, while we we're in the lead there. Um, if it had have rained properly, like you said. We probably would have held on to that, you know, twenty second lead or whatever it was. Um, I think it might have even been more than that, and and because everyone would have had to pit. But as it turned out, you know, it only had a small drizzle. Um, then Paul Morris spun at the cutting, yeah, and they threw the safety right. car out. Yep. And there was no need for the safety car. That was the only reason why we pitted because it wasn't wet enough to pit yet. But we had that one stop to get out of the way. Um, Paul drove off and there was no need for a safety car and, and uh, we popped out in third behind, you know, Jamie and Frosty. Um, you know, fresh tyres. If it had a, you know, been dry for the rest of the race, we needed fresh tyres to win it. Otherwise, I would have been on, you know, 45 lap old tyres <laughs> by the end of the race and that wasn't the way to win it. And going back to my theory, like I said before, I don't remember who came second or third. Um, so, you know, it's a race that you, you, know, you win or or not been, but you, know, you win or or, uh, or, or you nothing. Don't. So yeah. It, yeah. yeah, and and so you know, 
new tyres is the way to go. Um, and I remember coming over uh, into Reed Park there and, and Frosty had a twitch right in front of me because it was still damp over the crest. And when I hit that same wet patch, I just never got back online. Um, you know, I think Scafie and Russell both went in, you know, with me. Um, yeah, so it was, it was pretty disappointing. Like, we, you know, I, I felt like we were still in a pretty good position for that last, you know, run home. But it could have easily happened a lot of different ways. I think if it had rained properly and everyone went to West, we're in a good, a much better position. If it had gone halfway into the last dinner, we put a set of good tyres on and popped out in you know, first, second or third, we would have been in a pretty good position as well. So, you know, it was, it was gut-wrenching because, you know, I knew, I know that we had a really good shot at that day in my own team, first time there. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines, some standing as tall as 260 metres, that's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter. That's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts, and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing, the biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea, where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. How hard was it when the whole scenario unwound and the, the Brytec that you had built and with, with the people involved didn't run anymore? I mean, you did a couple more years driving there, but then you ended up running your car under your franchise out of Stone Brothers. Ironically enough, you ended up back running a car out of there in 2009. Was that simply a case of this is what we've got to do to, to run our licence and, and put a car on the grid? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it was, I started Fujitsu as a sponsor, you know, and it was, you know, the, the funding we were getting from them was still good enough to run a car, but not run a car out of our own workshop and, you know, have an engine program and all of the staff associated with it, but we could run it as a customer at a Stone Brothers. So, you know, and that was, that was a good opportunity. It probably wasn't until mid-year before we started to sort of hit our stride there once we got in the FG. Um but you know, I was already it was already going to be tough for the year after because you know there was a lot of people circling trying to steal Fujitsu, um, you know, and then the dollars that they were paying for one car with me, they could get for two cars at other places. So um, you know, the writing was on the wall to you know find another home. And you know, when I got pole at Phillip Island in the Fujitsu car, um, Brad came over and said, you know, I want to drive. Again, rather than be a team owner, give me a call, and that's what happened. And it was a very long, successful relationship with you and BJR. You got their first championship race win in Perth in, in 2011. You you won the JR Trophy at Pukekohe. You had plenty of wins, plenty of speed. Uh, did you surprise yourself at how you found such a happy home at, at BJR? Because it always seemed it's always been a really family team between Brad and Kim, being based in a in Aubrey, obviously it's not in a metro scenario, so a lot of people are moving to come and work at that team and it becomes a, a close-knit organisation. Were you surprised at how tight it all became for the, what, I think five, six years that you were there, seven years? Yeah, I mean, it was a great environment. You know, a great bunch of guys, engineering group, you know, mechanics. Brad's great to deal with. So it's him, like, you know, it was when I, when I first got there, you know, I think I went to their Christmas party um, before you know, the season, the end of the season um, Christmas party. And um, I think it was JR or Cam McConville said, mate, you know, you, you'll never want to leave this joint. You know, it's a great family vibe. And, and uh, you know, and then that was pretty much as it was. You know, the, the, the atmosphere there was always really good. I was lucky, you know, I sort of teamed up again with Phil and, and we were able to, you know, make the 
strides on the car that we needed to and JR was awesome to work with because he was just so dedicated and you know him and Wally were were as you know, as thorough and and dedicated as you know any teammates I've ever had and that was you know that, it was just great everyone was working together and you know to see the success that we started to get in that you know end of the first year and and sort of in halfway through the second year was awesome you know great great feeling to be part of that small team and and uh, you know see the satisfaction on everyone's face when you know we, we sort of came out and you know beat a couple of teams that looked unbeatable for the years before so and then the, the car of the future era was even better for us we you know we came out of the gates there extremely strong and um, you know at the right time to win the, the JR trophy like said tell me we've covered it I know Greg Rust and I have discussed on this podcast in recent times a scenario that he found himself in when when Jason was sick do you remember where you were when you heard the news that that he had something going on uh, yeah well he was actually meant to pick me up um, to drive up to Albury for a debrief um, so it was straight after Tassie uh, you know he he was we were heading up there on the Tuesday morning and and when when we we're in Tassie you know I I knew that he wasn't well, but he wasn't really showing it that much. But he, you know, he wanted to go to the chemist and and you know get some stuff. And and then it was uh, you know Tuesday morning. He said he just didn't show up, and so I sort of thought something was wrong there. And, and then you know it wasn't until sort of later that day, um, you know, that I, I sort of started to hear the, the gravity of the situation. And um, you know, I, yeah, it was it was uh, it was pretty tough time obviously you know I think and you know that they they dealt with it better than you know I think 99% of the people in this world would um, you know and his his uh, you know next six months where he was still getting in a race car and, and uh, you know calling me you know he called me all that year you know all of the year after just you know wanting to talk about the car after every race meeting and you know what's going on and you know, it was he's he was an amazing person in that regard where he just still was a massive part of that team. Winning that trophy his trophy at Pukekohe in what is in essence his car, the number eight BOC car that he had driven before he, he got sick. Where does that sit in the career highlights? I mean you've won Bathurst, you've won the Gold Star, you've won piles of races uh in Australia and in the United States. Where does that one stack up? Oh yeah, right up there. Like you know, and for for many reasons, you know, I, I it was it meant so much. I don't think I've ever in all my racing been as nervous as what I was that morning. You know, you don't. It was a unique weekend because you know we don't have race weekends where you're sort of counting the points for the weekend. And um, so I came into that morning leading the points, you know, with a race to go and. Uh, and or race or two, and I knew it was mine to lose rather than go out there and chase from behind and win. So I, yeah, I just remember that nervous feeling that morning that this race would mean so much to everyone, and it's mine to lose. So yeah, we and we did it in good style. Like I, I what I really loved about it was you know we didn't lead off the start, Jamie left, and you know we passed him for the win and pulled away. You know it wasn't it wasn't a uh, you know, we just won because we had the most points or whatever. We, you know, we won because we were the quickest car, and that was that was you know, the most satisfying part of it. But just yeah, to, I just knew that it meant so much to everyone, including myself. And but it was mine to lose, so it made it even more special. And it's still very special. What seven years on, and it's um, it's nearly ten years since we lost him. And I'm sure that somewhere, I mean, we did last year on. RPM, a JR special, which, of course, in a half-hour format, when you take out the ad breaks, is only 21, 22 minutes. So, uh, and we didn't get a chance to catch up with you for that show. So I think uh, moving forward, we'd love to find a way, maybe even on this podcast that we do a, a JR episode down the track, uh, or find a way somewhere to weave together some of that great vision from the Supercars uh, archive to put something pretty cool together in, in upcoming years. Uh, we can't let it go by, though. As much as we love and we miss him, Jeezy drove us nuts with some of that stuff. I mean, he was late to everything. Um, yeah. He would talk to everybody because he was genuinely interested and cared about uh, 
every single person that he'd ever met in his life. Uh, yeah. I've spoken to Cam McConville, who was teammates with him for a time, to Andrew Jones at Tasman, uh, Greg Murphy. They all say the same sort of thing. I'm guessing he wasn't any different when he was driving with you. No, that's for sure. And, you know, he was, he, like, I think the thing that stands out about JR was exactly what you said, where he would just stand there and have a conversation with anyone and, and, um, and would be as kind and polite to any person that he ever spoke to. And, and that, that's what was special about him. Like, you know, you see, you know, I, I think, and I've been guilty of it plenty of times in my career where, you know, you're just busy and, and um, you, know, you have to sort of keep moving on, but, you know, he'd give everyone plenty of time and, and uh, you know, his passion for racing and learning and, you know, was, was just awesome to see. You know, I, I, I haven't, I've never had a teammate like that where they just, it was everything that they lived and breathed. Do you remember where you were when... You heard the news that we'd lost him. Oh, I was in Mexico, yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think it was Rachel House who phoned us at the time, and um, yeah, it was. I was. I think I was sitting at a restaurant. So yeah, it was. Um, it was. It was pretty sad. I mean, you know, and, and I couldn't make it back for his funeral, or you know, just you know, we were told by so many people not to not to come back. Um, yeah, so it was, it was difficult being away. Went to a, I think it was a Jimmy Barnes concert the night before we left. Um, so got to uh, see him just before I left to go overseas. So, you know, and he was the typical JR, um, you know, very sick, but he um, he still wanted to spend plenty of time out and, and um, ch- chatted the whole way through the concert about <laughs> motorsport. Um, and then you know, I wanted to do something special and go and have a, a lamb sandwich on Chapel Street, <laughs> late night lamb sandwich because he'd never had one before. <laughs> so yeah, and yeah, so it was, you know, it was sad that you know we weren't home when when he passed away, but had a you know felt like we'd seen Jr. right up to the time we left. Save up some more Jr. stories. We'll get to them another time, I'm sure. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to cover off, Peter Brock. Todd Kelly, Greg Murphy, Jason Bright, Bathurst 24-hour champions. You are still the reigning and current 24-hour champions. You've not been beaten since 2003. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, crazy, crazy event. Um, you know, it was, I, yeah, the, the Monaro was a bit of a beast. The, the crazy part about that race was the finish. Um, you know, obviously the year before, there was just the one Monaro, and, and then, you know, the second year there was obviously the, yellow one and the red one and uh and you know went the whole 24 hours we both had problems but you know ended up on the track you know 30 or 40 seconds apart on the same lap and and gary rogers was like yep no worries murph just uh slow up you know let's uh catch you and wherever I'm, this is in the last three laps you know so we're, we're all assuming yep just lining up for the one two finish and then gary goes all right boys all bets are off just make sure you bring it home First one to the flag win after 24 hours of racing. And those last three laps, you know, I think we went from doing two minutes 17s to, you know, two minutes 13s, which was four seconds quicker than what we'd been all week. <laughs> and Murph and, and Garth are sort of going at it hammer and tong to try and win the 24 hour race in the last three laps. And it was, man, that was insane. But, you know, obviously they brought it home. Fortunately, in the right order, but um, yeah, Gary, Gary's uh, <coughs> Gary's methodology there—I I could never understand it. <laughs> <laughs> was it cool to say that you ended up driving at Bathurst with Brock, and obviously getting his last win up there with him? Yeah, very good. I mean, obviously, you know, it's not the one thousand, but you know, winning any race at Bathurst is awesome, and you know, winning it with uh, Brock's name on the door was very special. You know, I still see that car. Every you know so often over here at Sutton near my office, and yeah, still still got the name on the door, which is good. And you know, I, I guess you know there's limited people that were lucky enough to to, to you know race with Brock. Um, but yeah, the win at Bathurst, which is what he was famous for, was um, you know was pretty cool, and I'm sure it's something that you know Murph and Todd remember pretty fondly as well. I think the thing that I remember most that Brock had a sip of a beer at the press conference. You all made him have a VB. 
Yeah. I can't remember that. <laughs> it must but have been tired and delirious. It was a long race. Yep. It was a long, <laughs> long week, the 24-hour. Uh, of course, that was the last one held in 03. We haven't had it since. We've got the 12-hour, which you've done a bit of in the Proddy era and also in a you, – you drove a Peugeot, didn't you, in the 12-hour? I did. I did. That's yeah, one everyone forgets. Week all race, which was fun, in the cockpit. But, um, oh, oh, yeah, they, they did, did the Peugeot there, drove the Mustang with Marcus Akanovic. Um Unfortunately, crashed the, the Audi of Rod Nash's there in qualifying – um, yeah, it was. Yeah, I don't know if anyone's ever done the. You know, there's only a limited number of drivers, I guess, that can do it. Um, you know, win the twelve hour, the one thousand, and the and the and the twenty four hour. Um, but yeah, it was something I was pretty keen to do. And the twelve hour was try and get that one as well because you know it hadn't been done before. But mm. I don't think it's going to be pretty hard to for, for anyone to do. What's your, uh, and we've got a couple more things I want to get to, we've got our Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout and our National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions. Um, one of the other things that I, I wanted to, to cover off, and I, I know we're trying to race through it really fast at the moment, what's your status? I know you did TCR last year in the Volkswagen with the, the task force back in your business, and we'll cover off task force very soon so people know what you're doing now because we're obviously not seeing you driving race cars at the moment. Are you... Semi-retired? Would you take a phone call from a supercar team for an endurance co-drive? Are you just racing for fun when the opportunity arises? What's your current status as a racing driver? Uh, no, I still, I still love racing. I, you know, I haven't had the time to probably pursue, you know, the drive if they were out there. You know, I, I, you know, I'm still keen to do Bathurst. Still keen to do TCR. Um, you know, there's a lot of time involved in pulling those things off, and then you know, dedicating everything you need to it and you know, I've probably got more time now than what I had, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, you know, now that my business is sort of more and more established, but um, you know, I, I, it's just a matter of spending the time to, to make it all happen. And you know, I was still keen to do TCR this year. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the racing last year, and feel like as a category, they've done an awesome job. And and in all of the work that they've done, you know, with the events they've got now, with the Grand Prix and, and uh, you know, the Bathurst event, they're doing everything right. You've got the television, but it just, you know, I didn't have anything for the Grand Prix. Um, I was still trying to pull something off for the championship, but that's obviously, you know, taking a fair hit with um, the COVID-19 issue at the moment. And so, you know, I might end up having to sit out this year, but, you know, I'd be keen to get back out there next year, for sure. For those who don't know, you set up your business uh, well, some time ago now. What is Task Force? What do you do? And have you been affected by the, the current scenario as, as so many other businesses have been in, in, in not just the country but in the world? Uh, so we're, we're a trade and service group. So we, you know, we've got uh, a network of tradies all over the country um, in all you know, different trades and services um, from you know normal trades like Thomas Electricians and you know, we've got handymen, we've got cleaners, lawn mowing guys all over the country. And so we, we have software that now enables manufacturers to handle all of their warranty work. Um, we, we do software for real estate agents to manage their tradies as well. Um, and, you know, we, we supply services to all of those guys. We do installs for different manufacturers and retailers. So um, we've been pretty sheltered from the COVID-19 issue at the moment um, because, a large chunk of our work is work that's done for manufacturers either under warranty or insurance work. So, um, you know, fortunately, we've been pretty sheltered from that. Um, but, you know, we have seen some drop in, in some of the new installs, but that hasn't been as big a part of our business, fortunately. So, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, I enjoy it. The, the software side of it is very exciting. You know, we've, we've done a lot of good work on the software and finding new opportunities for it all the time. And that just generates more and more work for all of our guys. Ah, good to hear. Good to hear. Actually, one, before we get to the questions and um, the Motor Focus Top 10 shootout, one of the cars you mentioned earlier on, and I, I didn't get a chance, uh, the panels, the race of a thousand years in Adelaide where you drove with uh, Greg Murphy and, and David Brabham, that is the coolest sports car ever made. Front engine, I think it was, what, a six-litre Ford V8 jammed in it. That's that's a car with attitude. That was the coolest car at a time was, where it made no sense, but it was just cool. Yeah, yeah, it was a beast. And, you know, Don Panos, 
was known for you know doing different things and and uh, you know that was that car certainly didn't fit the mold of most LMP sports cars, but it was a beast to drive. Like you sat pretty much on the you know left rear tire. Um, that's where the you know how far back the seat was. You know the the nose was massively long. It had carbon brakes and a heap of horsepower and. It was very unique to drive, and I think you know Brad, um, who Murph and I drove with in that event. He was, um, you know, probably the most experienced Penos driver around, and he sort of had a pretty good knack for for the car. And, and it took Murph and I a fair while to understand it, I guess. And you know, it was it was you know Brad's was awesome in qualifying what he was getting out of the car compared to what. Murph and I felt like it could do, but it was um, it was it was a very different beast to drive, but a, you know a lot of fun. How did that come together? Was it because you were in the states at the time doing Indy Lights and the, the the Gold Coast Champ Car Race? How did that all come to be? Because I think that deal was originally going to be a Craig Lowndes car, and then he was having his um, departure from HRT, and he ended up in and out, and you and Murph ended up in. How did that all come together? I have no idea. <laughs> 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 wasn't that long ago. No, I, yeah, I, I can't remember all of the details. I, you know, I mean, it was, it was, I think it was, it was obviously before I'd sort of done much with David Brabham in supercars, so it wasn't that. I, yeah, I, I can't remember how it all came together. Um, I know, you know, I was obviously over there at the time, so that made a bit of sense. I think I must have you know, made phone calls to the right people to, to sort of get in the mix there, but I... I can't remember the, the details of it all. There was so much that went on that year. You did it. It was cool. It's in yep. the history books. So, uh, one other quick thing before we get onto these other questions, Le Mans. You finally got to do it in a uh, a Ferrari, wasn't it? In 2013, the the, the Aston program with ProDrive. I think there was a date clash at the time, some years earlier, so it, it didn't work yep. out. So you finally got there to drive a Ferrari. What was the the feeling like to finally drive at one of the world's most famous races? Did you ever think that you were going to get that done? Uh, I knew I was hoping, and, and you know I knew I obviously had the opportunity there in 2006, and then the date clash meant that it didn't happen. But funnily enough, it was those same guys, you know Pedro Lamy and and uh, Stefan Sarazen that helped me get to drive in the Ferrari. You know, seven years later, or eight years later, it was um, it was their recommendation to Enzo, who I ended up driving with, that he should you know get me to drive the car with him. Uh, at Le Mans, so you know, I sort of thank them for for helping me get that opportunity. But it was it was very special. We were you know, once again a, a bit of a rain god. Um, <laughs> you know, it rained all of practice. You know, I mean, all of the tests the week two weeks before, and all of the practice was wet. And I think the first time I drove in the dry was a night session, and I was still trying to figure out where to break when you couldn't even see where the chicanes are on the mole side. And so, you know, it was, it was unfortunate once again that, you know, basically all of the practice was wet. Um, but, you know, we, we, we should have had a good result there. You know, we were, we were quick enough. Um, had a puncher in the, you know, fifth hour, which, you know, when it happens sort of on the mole side, there's a long way to get back. And, and uh, you know, by the time the repairs are, were made, um, you know, we lost five laps and, you know, I think we, we made ground for the rest of the race, but, you know, never going to make up five laps at that joint, unfortunately. So, you know, if the, if the other guys don't have a problem, but it was a pretty amazing experience. Um, it all goes too quickly. It does, but you got to do it. Another thing on the bucket list that is pretty cool that you managed to achieve. Uh, on our podcast, we throw it open to the fans via our social media platforms to get some of their questions. So our National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions, by the way, the museum is where your 24-hour winning Monaro has spent some time in recent times. It's yep. currently closed at the moment because of the situation, but uh, when they do reopen down the track, make sure you get there, whether you're at Mount Panorama for an event or you're just heading through town. It's a cool place to go, and they're constantly changing uh, the exhibitions. They've had a great 12-hour, 24-hour exhibition on uh, at the start of the year. Uh, Andrew off Facebook asks... Did you and Scaife ever grab each other by the collar? He seems to think that there was a situation at a Sandown sprint round when you were teammates that it got testy. True or false? <laughs> uh, no. Oh, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. I, I 
I know I got tenth because um, I felt like he drove me off the track at turn one, and you know I think the two Kmart cars were behind us, and they managed to get through side by side, but I got driven out over the curb. And I think when I brought it up, I got I got more of a reaming from uh, the team manager at the time, Jeff Gretsch, um, you know, which was disappointing. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, because you know, I was like, hey, you know, I feel like there was enough room there for both of us. And, um, and yeah, it didn't go down so well. And, you know, hats off to my engineer at the time. He backed me up and, and uh, you know, made mention of it as well to him. But, yeah, it was, it was, there, there was some tense moments then. Um, and that was, yeah, it was, it was all over turn one at, uh, at Sandown first lap. Okay, Saron from Facebook asks, how did the personal uh, sponsorship with Skilled come about in the early years of your career? And I think you touched on it very briefly. Uh, they were your employer at the time. Is that right? They were, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I did my apprenticeship with the State Electricity Commission down in Gippsland, and um, it was uh, it was all being privatised at the time. So, I'll, you know, I basically was made redundant when I finished my apprenticeship and and uh, started doing temp work for Skilled as a fitter and turner. Um, and the guy that used to drop off my overalls every week uh, said, oh, you know, here you're doing some racing. Why don't you, you know, send a proposal to Skills? And um, so that's what I did. And, you know, they they came on board, you know, as a as a sponsor on my Formula Ford. And then, you know, the when we won the championship, um, they sponsored me in the Formula Holden at the Adelaide Grand Prix uh, on the proviso that they got first rights on anything that I... I did, you know, the year after and the year after that. So, um, yeah, the opportunities like that don't come along every day. You work very hard to find every single sponsor. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate that my employer turned into a sponsor. Not everyone can say that. Just no one who works for you at Task Force get any ideas, okay? Don't go ask the boss for, for funding for your motor racing career. Uh, Mick asks from Facebook, in 2004, you were you, you were in a pretty big crash on the Gold Coast where Rick Kelly made some contact with you. Did you feel you had the car to go on and win the championship before that accident happened? And probably open up a bit about, that was nasty. That was a real bell ringer. How much did that one sting? Yeah, that one hurt, uh, you know, and it, it, it was... It slapped the wall really hard. The wall was at a forty-five degree angle there for some silly reason, and um, yeah, it was it was a big hit. You know, I was very very lucky. And I want to remember, you know, almost being knocked out. I was sort of looking at my lap for quite a while, but you know, everything was a bit of a blur. Um, but yeah, it was it was pre, you know, the seats being mounted to the roll cage, and the seat had you know completely disintegrated in the car. Um, so I was you know extremely lucky in that crash. Um, as far as, you know, whether we could have gone on to win the championship, you know, we were certainly competitive that year and, and um, you know, would have, would have liked to have had a, you know, a bit more of a crack at Marcus for the rest of the year. Um, whether it was that particular event, you know, we had a, had some issues at the last round at, at uh, Sydney as well, I think, with, uh, you know, we missed all of practice and it was only a two-hour practice session. There was, there was a few different things that, you know, didn't go right for us, you know, that year. But, um, you know, Bathurst was a disaster. I think they had a break this call off on that 16, you know, through a, a, a small error, um, you know, assembling it. So, you know, we, yeah, we, we missed out on a – there was a few opportunities later in that year that sort of fell by the wayside. Next one is our question of the week, and it's thanks to Castrol from Matt from Facebook. And it actually reverts uh, – sorry, it involves 2004 – what really happened in regards to the mysterious bolts that were found in the top end of your engine? We never got the real full story on it. Now, that was Oran Park 2004, yep. and there was uh, stories at the time that there was sabotage of your car because there were uh, bolts, nuts, combination it was just of both. a random handful of bolts, yeah. So I, I went out of the pit on, um, you know, for practice, and I came over the bridge there at Oran Park, and then the throttle got stuck fairly well open and um, you know, I pulled up on the infield turned it off when the car got back to the pits and they opened up the airbox there was there was a sort of random just a random bunch of nuts and bolts you know nothing nothing that would go on on the race car um, all jammed in the throttle and so yeah you know there was I think um, you know the team 
were worried that there was some some sort of sabotage. But yeah, it was it was a very you know, I, who knows? I've never ever found out you know what happened. Um, whether someone lost some bolts <laughs> somewhere along the line there. You found um, no them one, for them. No one, no one sort of came along and said, "Yeah, no, no, I lost those bolts." So, I don't think they're going to um, just quietly. No, nah, nah. so yeah, it was it was very random. I can't say anything like that has uh, ever happened any other time in my career, though. Thankfully. So- so the, you feel it was sabotage that it couldn't have been accidentally left there by a mechanic overnight, or it wasn't? No, no, that's offense? why it, that's why it came out like that because you know the, the mechanics and and the engine guys. I mean, the engines were were done by um, Old Motorsport um, HRT, and you know they're all like, man, they're, they're not even, they're not our bolts. You know, there's no they're not even there's nowhere that they go on the engine or on the car. Um, you know, so it was their sort of feeling that, you know, it's not their mistake. It's not something that, you know, that, that uh, you know, could have been a mistake. It was, yeah, and it, it had all been obviously run up the day before and nothing had been noticed. So, yeah, I I don't know. Who knows what happened? Um, you know, I was obviously pulled into it because there was, uh, you know, claims of, of sabotage, but who knows what happened. I didn't lose him. Now, the uh, question, that was from Matt, and that was actually our question of the week, and Castrol back our question of the week on the V8 podcast because, of course, they're more than just oil. They're liquid engineering. This is the bit, Brody, where I do the live voice read, so you just take a, st- <laughs> take a break. Yep. Uh, Castrol, of course, provides the oils, fluids, lubricants for today and the future for, for every driver, every rider, every industry. Follow them on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport, exclusive competitions, and much more, and they're going to let me loose on Facebook Live on the Castrol account this year. That could be very, very dangerous for all concerned. Uh, we'll race through the rest of them. Uh, we've taken a lot of your time today. We, we won't take too much more. Uh, uh, one that came in from XPT underscore driver on Instagram. I don't know what his actual name is. In 1995 at Malala, I was 14 and went to a guy by the name of Weber for an autograph. He signed my program and as he did it, he said, go and get his signature. He's going to be big. And he pointed at you. What's your main memory of racing against Weber in Formula Ford? <laughs> um, oh, we had we had some great races. You know, we had like good battles at Lakeside. You know, we were good friends, really good friends. Um, our families were all you know very good friends as well. You know, we used to go out for dinner at, at each race meeting. Um, you know, we used to stay at the same hotel a lot of the times. Um, yeah, so no, it was it was good times, good battles. Um, yeah, and. And we, you know, we really enjoy. I enjoy. I look back on those days, you know, with very good memories. Um, you know, because I felt like, you know, there's a small team, you know, of people. Like, you know, everyone was sort of running it with family and friends, and and uh, you know, people helping out. And you know, we'd, we'd drive across to Perth or Queensland, you know, in, in my in my Commodore wagon with a two and a half trailer, two and a half ton trailer on the back, and you know, it was just, it was, yeah, really good. Enjoyable times, um, good racing. You know, Mark, like I said, the rivalry with Mark was was you know really strong all year. Um, you know, he had a bit of a shocking end of the year. Otherwise, I think it would have been you know a much tighter affair. Um, you know, for the last round or two. But you know, it was it was good times in Formula Four. No, very cool, very cool. That's our last of our National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions. Time to us for us to move to the Motor Focus Top Ten Shootout. You've done many a shootout in your time, Bridie, but this is a little bit different. This is, in essence, word association. You give me the first word or two, or maybe three, that springs to mind with the following ten things. It's brought to you by Motor Focus. They are your home of quality scar models with all the big brands and much, much more. Probably some Jason Bright model cars in among the collection there, I would have thought. You can visit their website, shop online, motorfocus.com.au, or stop in and see them at Unit 9, number one Stockwell Place in Archerfield, Queensland. Archerfield, if you like your speedway, uh, is one that many people will know. Right, here we go. Top ten shootout. You tell me the first thing that comes into your brain when I say... Brad Jones. Genuine. Mark Scaife. Hard work. <laughs> That's two words, but we'll let you have it. Uh, AU Falcon. Ugly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paul Wheel. Good bloke. Bill Keed. <laughs> Frustrating. <laughs> 
but I'll I can elaborate on that. You know, we had some frustrating times, but you know, enjoyed. But he, he can be very frustrating, but love every minute that I ever work with him. Put it that way. Okay. Important to qualify. You are allowed to qualify the the, the word or two. Yeah. Uh, okay. Ross Stone. Uh, racer. Scott Dixon. Hard racer. <laughs> he, he like yeah. I, yeah, Scott, I, I sort of raced Formula Holden here and, and, you know, obviously Indy Lights over there. Um, yeah, he was good, hard racer. really enjoyed racing Scott. Winton? Uh, technical. You always went good love, at Winton. I love, love Winton, though. Yeah, I, I do. I, Winton's always been good to me in all the teams I've driven for. So, um, yeah, I, I, I enjoy I enjoy Winton when, when uh, you know, when everything's working right there. It's really, I can get a really good rhythm there. Funnily enough, not a lot of people have said such things regarding Winton because I think it's a track that quite a few people struggle with. Two more to go. Uh, Alan Jones. Bulldog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, yeah, and I say that because in, in such a good way. Like him in the wet in, you know, that sort of supercar era, sort of 96, 97, he was sensational. Like he handed over that car to me in the wet, in the lead at, at Sandown and then Bathurst, he's like, you know, he was elbows out and bloody good, you know, racer in the wet. And, and I enjoyed that bulldog sort of Alan Jones from from that era. Probably a few drivers who were in other cars that wouldn't agree, but when you were on his team, then that was a good thing to have. <laughs> the last one in yeah. our Motor Focus Top 10 shootout, Peter Brock. Legend. There you go. You survived. You didn't hit Armco. You didn't spin. You didn't do no. anything wrong. Well done. No, you made it through. Put a few nodes out of joint along the way, but anyway. That's the aim of the game. That's the aim <laughs> of the game. Hey, we, we've covered a lot on this podcast. Uh, there's plenty that we didn't get a chance to squeeze in. We might be able to do it another time. But, again, thank you so much for taking the time to go down memory lane, open up about a few things that some of our listeners might not have known about in what has been a truly amazing career. You've done some very cool stuff that a lot of other people will, will never get close to doing some of that stuff. So I hope you look back on it really fondly, and this has been a chance to, to look at it too. It's not over. We'll, we'll see you in a race car somewhere down the track very soon, whether it's a, a TCR car or another crack at Bathurst 12-hour or a, a supercar enduro somewhere along the line. I've got a feeling we, we haven't seen the last of you just yet. Nah, thanks, mate. It's enjoyable to chat to you, man. Well, there you go. Thank you very much to Jason Bright for the chat. We ended up on the phone for over two hours chatting about his career, and we're on the hunt still for that Raynard that he drove at the Gold Coast Indy in 2000. Uh, we've had a chat to some sources stateside and a few people in Australia. We're on the trail. There's a suggestion that maybe it was used in the filming of the film Driven. No doubt it probably wouldn't have survived that, but if you know anything or you think you might... Drop us a line on our contact form on v8salute.com.au or get in touch with us via our Facebook or, or Instagram pages. Now, the bit you've all been waiting for. Drum roll, please. The three winners of the V8 Sleuth podcast trivia competition from episode 40. Now, you all rose to the challenge of some really tough questions, and well done. We had two entrants who scored the perfect score of 20 out of 20. First past the checkered flag, huge congratulations. Shannon Lambert from Queensland, well done. You won a copy of our Ford at Bathurst book, that is the history of Ford at Bathurst, a photo of every car from every year's race from 1963 to 2018. It's a stunning book, limited only to 2,000 copies. We've got about 100 left. If you've missed out on the prize today, jump on the online store and grab yourself a copy. Shannon's also won a copy of the Falcon Files and Cars of the King magazines too. Second place... Drum roll, please. No, I can't really do drum rolls. Anyway, second, Christina Beatty, also from Queensland. Congratulations, Christina. You've won a copy of the 2018 official Super Cheap Auto Bathurst 1000 annual, plus copies of the Falcon Files and Cars of the King, all of which are still available in our V8 Sleuth online store at reduced stock take sale prices. The Falcon Files is $15 now with the full history of all the Falcon supercars from 1992 to 2017. And Cars of the King, all of Peter Brock's Bathurst 500 and 1000 cars, now just $12.50 plus postage. Ah, rounding out the podium. Third place, congratulations from New South Wales, Mark Ketterer. Well done, Mark. You've scored a copy of the 1982 James Hardy 1000 from Bathurst on DVD. It is the full race, complete with all the action, 
from the ad breaks that you never saw on the day. Of course, you can get all of your seven sport magic moments of motorsport DVDs from cmsmotorsport.com.au. Plenty of great old racing content there to keep you busy. So we'll get that one out to you, Mark, in the post very soon. And our prizes to our winner, Shannon Lambert, and second place, Christina Beattie, as well. Thank you to everyone who entered. We hope you had a bit of fun with it. We might do another one sometime very soon in the future. It had a very good response, our first trivia uh, contest. We might have to make some slightly harder questions too. If you missed out on prizes, as I said before, uh, jump on our V8 Sleuth bookstore. We have our stock take sale on now. Head to v8sleuth.com.au, click on the bookstore tab, and away you go with some bargains. Sign up to our newsletter while you're there. Follow us on social. You won't miss out on any new offers, products, or podcast episodes as they come up. Until then, though, we'll catch you next time on the V8 Sleuth podcast. Pal. Timken.